Welcome to conference coverage presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160 and powered by Health Day. Featuring the latest clinical information and research findings from the American Academy of Neurology's 2010 annual meeting. The meeting took place April 10th through the 17th in Toronto. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Kina. And I'm your co-host, Sue Berg. The six-day meeting attracted about 12,000 attendees from around the world. It featured over 2,000 abstracts on topics in clinical and basic science research, covering a wide variety of neurology subspecialties. Topics included multiple sclerosis therapies, Alzheimer's disease and genetics, novel treatments for migraine headaches, and updates on new ways to anticoagulate patients with atrial fibrillation to minimize cerebral hemorrhage, and many others. One highlight was results from the Phase 3 Preempt 2 trial. During this study, investigators randomly assigned 705 patients with chronic migraine to receive either injections of onabotulinum toxin A, also known as Botox, or placebo every 12 weeks for two cycles, followed by three cycles of onabotulinum toxin A. After 24 weeks, researchers found that onabotulinum toxin A was statistically significantly superior to placebo for reduction in the frequency of headache days, resulting in nine fewer headache days versus about six and a half for placebo. Onabotulinum toxin A was also found to be statistically significantly superior for five secondary variables, headache episodes, migraine or probable migraine days, cumulative hours of headache on headache days, moderate or severe headache days, and the proportion of patients with severe headache impact test 6 scores. The authors concluded that these results demonstrate that onabotulinum toxin A is effective for the prevention of headache in adults with chronic migraine and appears to be safe and well-tolerated. The study was supported by Allergan Incorporated. The meeting also featured reports about the Mediterranean diet. The Mediterranean diet is made up of a high quantity of vegetables, legumes, fruits, cereals, fish, and monosaturated fatty acids like olive oil, low intake of saturated fatty acids, dairy products, meat, and poultry, and mild to moderate amounts of alcohol. It has been recommended for reducing the incidence of cerebrovascular disease and has been shown to be effective in reducing the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Researchers in one study followed 712 adults for an average of six years. They were divided into three groups based on low, moderate, or high adherence to the Mediterranean diet. Study participants who either most closely or moderately followed the diet were found to be 36 to 21 percent less likely to have brain damage linked to thinking problems when compared to subjects with the lowest adherence to the Mediterranean-like diet. In a statement, the study's lead author said that not eating a Mediterranean-like diet had a similar effect on the brain as having high blood pressure. The authors also speculated that fewer brain infarcts may partially explain their previous findings that a Mediterranean-like diet may be associated with a lower risk of Alzheimer's disease and may lengthen survival in Alzheimer's patients. German researchers presented data from the RELY study in which they investigated the rate of major bleeds and intracranial bleeds when patients with atrial fibrillation were treated with either warfarin or dabigatran. Warfarin reduces the risk of stroke in atrial fibrillation patients but increases the risk of hemorrhage and intracranial bleeding. Over 18,000 patients with atrial fibrillation were assigned to receive blinded fixed doses of dabigatran 110 or 150 milligrams twice daily or unblinded adjusted warfarin. Patients were followed for an average of two years. Investigators found that the 150 milligram dose of dabigatran was superior to warfarin in reducing the risk of ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke. The study was supported by Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, USA.
Dr. David B. Clifford of the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis presented an update on progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, also known as PML, in multiple sclerosis patients treated with the drug natalizumab. Natalizumab was temporarily withdrawn from the market because of concerns it could cause PML, but was recently reintroduced. Dr. Clifford reported the incidence of PML increases with duration of exposure to drug. The rate was about 1 in 1,000 patients who were treated for 2 to 3 years. Dr. Clifford and colleagues concluded that diagnosis requires clinical vigilance, reliable, sensitive, quantitative JC polymerase chain reaction test, and broaden criteria for magnetic resonance recognition of PML lesions, including contrast enhancement, and universal immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome reactions require aggressive management with corticosteroids. In research for patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, promising data was presented on the immune response in these patients after gene therapy using adeno-associated virus to transfer the mini-dystrophin gene. Six Duchenne muscular dystrophy patients were included in a double-blind gene transfer study to the biceps muscle. The results showed potential for a host response to foreign transgene products caused by frame-shifting mutations or large deletions. The researchers reported that four of the six subjects with frame-shifting deletions in the Duchenne muscular dystrophy gene had detectable T-cell responses to mini-dystrophin. Most of the targeted epitopes were non-self, located in sequences unique to the therapeutic dystrophin protein. However, in at least one instance, the dystrophin-specific T-cells were present at low frequency before vector treatment and expanded rapidly after mini-dystrophin expression. The target of this unexpected memory T-cell response was a self-epitope expressed from the defective dystrophin gene in revertent muscle fibers. A member of the American Academy of Neurology Science Committee commented that this treatment looks promising, but more study is needed before it's ready for prime time. Researchers at the Parkinson's Institute in California have found that exposure to the industrial cleaner trichloroethylene may increase the risk of Parkinson's disease. Job histories were obtained for 99 pairs of older male twins in which only one of the twins had Parkinson's disease. The researchers found that subjects exposed to the chemical trichloroethylene, or TCE, were five and a half times more likely to have Parkinson's disease than those not exposed. TCE is a common industrial solvent used to clean grease off metal parts. Those who were exposed to TCE had worked as dry cleaners, machinists, mechanics, or electricians. The researcher said this is the first time a population-based study has confirmed case reports that exposure to trichloroethylene may increase a person's risk of developing Parkinson's. Also, daily ibuprofen may help prevent Parkinson's disease. That was the finding of a Harvard study that followed over 130,000 subjects who did not have Parkinson's disease. Over the course of this six-year study, almost 300 participants were diagnosed with the disease. Participants were asked via questionnaire about their use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, including aspirin, ibuprofen, and acetaminophen. The researchers found that regular ibuprofen use was associated with a 40% reduced risk of Parkinson's disease compared to non-use. Further, subjects who took higher amounts of ibuprofen were less likely to develop Parkinson's than those who took smaller amounts of the drug. However, according to study's authors, ibuprofen was the only non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug linked with a lower risk of Parkinson's. Other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and analgesics, including aspirin and acetaminophen, did not appear to have any effect on lowering the risk of developing Parkinson's. Researchers said more research is needed as to how and why ibuprofen appears to reduce the risk of the disease.
Robot-assisted therapy for stroke patients with upper limb impairment was found to be somewhat beneficial. 127 patients were randomized to receive robot-assisted therapy, intensive therapy, or usual care. Robot-assisted therapy was not shown to significantly improve motor function at 12 weeks compared to usual care or intensive therapy. After 36 weeks, however, robot-assisted therapy was associated with improved outcomes compared to usual care but not intensive therapy. The authors concluded that this study provides evidence of the potential benefits of intensive rehabilitation in patients with long-term moderate to severe impairments after stroke. In addition, there was a well-attended presentation by investigators from Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston that discussed the potential of direct brain-computer interfaces. These could allow paralyzed patients to control an external device such as a wheelchair simply by modulating their cortical activity. Such a system could conceivably be used for brainstem stroke, advanced amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or spinal cord injury. Moderate alcohol consumption may have a beneficial effect on stroke risk, but it may be counteracted by cigarette smoking, according to British researchers. For this study, researchers tracked the drinking and smoking histories of more than 22,500 British residents for an average of 12 years. All subjects were between the ages of 39 and 79. None had a history of heart attack, cancer, or stroke. By the end of the study, 864 had experienced strokes. The lowest risk of stroke was observed among non-smokers who consumed between 3 to 14 units of alcohol per week, with a unit equal to about one glass of wine. Light to moderate drinking appeared to lower the odds for stroke compared to no alcohol consumption. However, the apparent protective effect of moderate drinking did not hold true for smokers. Smoking coupled with drinking may explain conflicting results from prior studies that explored the potential protective relationship between stroke risk and light to moderate drinking. In Alzheimer's disease research, variation in a gene known as MTHFD1L may be a novel risk factor for late onset of the disease, according to researchers at the University of Miami. MTHFD1L is involved in mitochondrial tetrahydrofolate synthesis associated with risk of neural tube defects and mRNA splicing efficiency. Researchers combined data on almost 500,000 single nucleotide polymorphisms from a previously reported genome-wide association study of late-onset Alzheimer's disease cases and controls, as well as from a novel set of late-onset Alzheimer's disease cases and cognitive controls. Associations exceeding the experiment-wide significance threshold were replicated in an additional 1,300 cases and 2,000 controls. The authors concluded that their finding is noteworthy specifically for late-onset Alzheimer's disease pathology, as MTHFD1L may play a role in the generation of methionine from homocysteine and influence homocysteine-related pathways. Homocysteine levels are a known risk factor for late-onset Alzheimer's disease development. In addition, variation in MTHFD1L has been previously reported in a genome-wide association study to have a statistically significant association with coronary artery disease risk, which may suggest a role in vascular features of Alzheimer's disease. A look back at flu season found a few cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome reported in patients who received the 2009 H1N1 vaccine. Researchers analyzed data from the CDC and the FDA's Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System and found that 35 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome were reported after 2009 H1N1 vaccination administration. This translates to about 3.5 cases of Guillain-Barre per 10 million vaccinations. 14 of the affected patients were men, 36.6 years old on average. 33 patients were hospitalized, one patient died, and another became disabled. 
Also, researchers found 57 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome reported after 2009 seasonal flu vaccination, or about 7.3 cases per 10 million vaccinations. Although investigators called the results preliminary, there did not appear to be any increased risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome following vaccination with either the 2009 H1N1 or the seasonal flu strain. And investigators say the safety record for these vaccines is excellent. Researchers at the Cleveland Clinic and colleagues presented data on the long-term efficacy of the cough-suppressant dextromethorphan and low doses of the cardiac drug quinidine given in combination to help control the involuntary laughing and crying episodes associated with pseudobulbar affect. Pseudobulbar affect, or PBA, can occur in patients diagnosed with brain injury or neurological disease, including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, and ALS. For this study, 283 patients with PBA and multiple sclerosis or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis were randomly assigned to receive either 30 mg or 20 mg of dextromethorphan and 10 mg of quinidine or placebo for 12 weeks. Almost 90% of these patients chose to enroll in a subsequent open-label study and received 30 mg of dextromethorphan and 10 mg of quinidine for an additional 12 weeks. From the start to the end of the open-labeled study, the researchers found that the mean test score on the Center for Neurologic Study Lability Scale, which measures frequency and severity of PBA, decreased by 2.7 points, considered significant. In the groups that had previously received 30 or 20 milligrams of dextromethorphan and 10 milligrams of quinidine, the measurement of PBA frequency and severity decreased by 2.6 to 2.4 points. The mean score in the placebo group decreased by about 3 points. These are the first long-term findings that demonstrate the effectiveness of combination dextromethorphan and low-dose quinidine in helping to control pseudobulbar affect. In a statement, the study's lead author said there are currently no FDA-approved treatments for PBA, and off-label treatments that are currently used are often ineffective or have unacceptable side effects. The study was supported by Avenir Pharmaceuticals, which holds a patent for this drug combination. Finally, new guidelines were issued during the meeting to help clinicians decide when a patient with Alzheimer's disease or other type of dementia should give up driving. The guidelines recommend the Clinical Dementia Rating Scale, as well as information from caregivers and direct examination regarding marginal or unsafe driving, and warning signs like driving shorter distances, collisions, and moving violations, avoiding certain driving situations like night driving or driving in the rain, and aggressive or impulsive behavior. The Academy says there is insufficient evidence to support or refute the benefit of neuropsychological testing after controlling for the presence and severity of dementia or interventional strategies for drivers with dementia. Thank you for listening to conference coverage from the American Academy of Neurology's 2010 annual meeting, which took place April 10th through the 17th in Toronto. Conference coverage is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD.com and powered by Health Day.